Section 24 of The Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 2, Chapter 9, The 45, Part 1. One of the strongest reasons that Sir Robert Walpole gave for his urgent wish that England should remain at peace was the security of the crown in the House of Brunswick. He maintained that if the nation was at war, a good opportunity would be offered to the supporters of the House of Stuart, who, ever on the lookout for an advantage, would not fail to use it. Walpole did not live to see his prophecy fulfilled, although he died only a few months before its fulfillment. In 1745, Robert Walpole, Earl of Orford, died in March. In May came the defeat at Fontenoy. Before July was ended, the young pretender had landed in Scotland. Had Walpole lived a little more than four months longer, he would have seen a rebellion begin, which seemed to be about to shatter his life's work. Had he lived two years longer, he would have seen in its defeat that his labors had not been in vain. In order to embarrass the English government, the French ministers summoned the young pretender from Rome in order that they might concert with him measures for an invasion of England. It may be as well to give some account of this hero of romance, who, like his father, was known by different names according to the views of those who spoke of him. Supporters of the established government in England called him the young pretender. His friends gave him the title Prince of Wales, and those who wished to be perfectly neutral knew him by the name of the young chevalier. Charles Edward Louis Casimir was the eldest son of the old pretender or chevalier de Saint-Georges, the James Francis Edward whose birth on the year of the English Revolution had so marked an effect in bringing that revolution about and who made the unsuccessful attempt to obtain the crown of Great Britain in 1715. The advisers of this defeated prince urged him to marry, in order that the House of Stuart might not become extinct with him. The lady that they selected for his hand was Princess Mary Clementina Sobieski, granddaughter of the heroic warrior King of Poland, one of the wealthiest heiresses in Europe. It was necessary that this young princess, who at the time of her marriage could not have been more than seventeen and a half, should pass through the Austrian territory to Italy in order that the marriage might there take place. Whilst she was on the road, the government of the emperor, being anxious to do the English a pleasure, because the support of England to his policy was of the utmost importance to him, caused the lady to be stopped on her journey and kept in a convent at Innsbruck in the Tyrol. But the young princess, evidently a brave and spirited woman, worthy of her origin, managed to escape. On arrival at Bologna in Italy, the marriage ceremony was performed, the husband being represented as princes often are by proxy, for James was in Spain helping forward the abortive Alberoni attempt. When that had completely failed, he returned to Italy. The young chevalier was born in Rome on the last day of the year 1720, whilst England was in great distress after the bursting of the South Sea bubble. He was thus under twenty-five at the time of his famous attempt, called after the year the forty-five. His father had been very little older at the time of his equally unsuccessful effort thirty years previous. 
The young man was in many ways well suited for the part he was about to play, for he was vigorous and athletic, having deliberately trained himself to bear fatigue, whilst his manners were courteous and winning. His features were handsome, and he had blue eyes. Unfortunately, he was badly educated. For instance, his spelling was atrocious. Less importance was attached to spelling in former days than now, but sword, S-O-R-D, for S-W-O-R-D, and gems, G-E-M-S, for his father's name, James, pass any fair allowance. Though he was of a frank, generous disposition, he had, as a matter of course, been brought up in the absurd predilection for arbitrary government, which had brought his family to ruin. Of course, also, like his father and grandfather, he was a Roman Catholic. As the father was still under sixty, and was looked upon by the Jacobites as king, it is curious that he should not have placed himself at the head of his followers on the occasion of this last attempt which they made to recover for him the throne of his ancestors. But continued failure chills the blood more than age, and it was thought better that the new effort should be made entirely by one whom no failure had discredited. Moreover, there was a marked contrast between the old and the young pretenders in spirit and in fitness to inspire an enterprise. There has been much disputing about the characters of each of these claimants to the crown. Probably neither was deficient in personal courage, but the father lacked resolution, and had, except with reference to his own claims, a vacillating mind as well as a melancholy disposition, whereas the son showed the dashing bravery of a true Highlander, happier in attack than in defence, and had an elastic gaiety of spirit ever brighter when clouds were darkest. Both have been brought up in exile, constantly cherishing hopes doomed to disappointment. If we seek for an explanation of the difference between them, perhaps we may find it in the Sobieski descent of the younger. It is important to notice this strain in him. John Sobieski was a Polish noble, elected to the crown of Poland because of his prowess as a general. With 20,000 men, he had fought an army of Cossacks and Tartars five times as large. The fighting was said to have lasted 17 days, but at the end of it, Sobieski had beaten back the invaders and saved his country. His greatest achievement was against the Turks. The emperor had refused to acknowledge him as king of Poland, but when the Turks came in hordes against the empire, the humbled emperor sued to Poland as to the other Christian powers for help. At first, Sobieski declined, but he was too chivalrous to see a Christian nation overwhelmed by the enemy of their common Christianity. The Turkish host had reached and was besieging Vienna when Sobieski appeared, mastered the Turkish camp, and drove the army back to the frontiers. A most magnanimous, high-souled king, full of desire for his people's good, Sobieski was yet unable to bring order out of anarchy in Poland and the Polish government. This king was great-grandfather of Charles Edward, in whom the ancestor's heroism reappears. The Jacobites naturally selected for their attempt the time when there was war between Great Britain and France. The young prince was summoned from Rome, which he left secretly as if he were starting to hunt, and by traveling swiftly escaped any attempt at capture, 
though it is said that the ship in which he sailed ran through the English fleet in the Mediterranean. The French were prepared to throw upon the English coast a force of 15,000 men, and an army of that number was being got ready upon the opposite shore under the celebrated Marshal Saxe. Such a force required a considerable number of transports, but the appearance of the English fleet and the opportune occurrence of a storm with the wind blowing straight on the French coast put a complete stop to the expedition. Many of the transports were driven ashore. It seemed as if the elements were fighting on behalf of England as the winds had helped to dissipate the invincible armada. Decidedly, wrote Marshal Saxe to a friend, the winds are not Jacobite. It is fortunate that they were not, for Marshal Saxe was a great general and had under him trained and war-tried soldiers, whilst England had no commander to set against him and her best troops were on the continent. After this mishap, the French ministers were reluctant to give any further help. But with or without French help, Charles Edward was determined to make his attempt. After the defeat of Fontenoy, as England seemed to have need of her soldiers on the continent, the opportunity seemed to offer itself. The prince embarked in the Dutel, a small sloop that had been fitted out as a privateer, whilst there went as convoy a French man-of-war, apparently procured without the direct sanction of the French ministers. An English ship of war met the pair, and engaging the French vessel, wrought it so much harm that it was compelled to put back to a French harbour to refit. The other vessel slipped away and reached the Hebrides. On July 25th at Moitart, the southwestern corner of Invernessshire, the prince landed, accompanied by seven devoted followers afterwards known as the Seven Men of Moidart. At the time of this famous landing, every one would have predicted speedy discomfiture. To those who had eyes to see, it seemed doubtful if even the Highlanders could be induced to rise in so hopeless an attempt, and certain that if the Highlanders hazarded their lives through zeal for the House of Stuart, no one else would join them. Whilst it was also clear that the Highlanders, unsupported, could avail not against the strength of England, the ablest and most influential of the Highland chiefs themselves saw this clearly, but enthusiasm and loyalty prevailed over their good judgment. Cameron of Lachiel endeavoured to dissuade the prince. His brother advised him to write his opinion, and not to trust himself within the fascination of the prince's presence, but unluckily for him, the advice was not followed. The end of the interview is thus described. In a few days, said the prince, with the few friends that I have, I will erect the royal standard and proclaim to the people of Britain that Charles Stuart is come over to claim the crown of his ancestors, to win it, or to perish in the attempt. Lachiel, who my father has often told me was our firmest friend, may stay at home and learn from the newspapers the fate of his prince. No, said Lachiel, I will share the fate of my prince, and so shall every man over whom nature or fortune hath given me any power. Thus Lachiel cast in his lot with what he called this rash undertaking, and it was generally believed that if he had kept aloof from it, the other chiefs would not have joined. On August 19th, in a romantic narrow valley called Glenfinnan, took place the ceremony of raising the standard. An old Marquis, who had been exiled for his part in the fifteen, 
one of the seven men of Moidart, performed the ceremony. So infirm was he from age that whilst handling the big banner of red silk with a white centre, he had to be supported by a man on each side. Loud cheers, loud music of the bagpipes, greeted the flag. Bonnets were thrown into the air. Then was read the manifesto of the prince's father and the commission of regency which entitled the prince to represent him, and the scene concluded with a stirring speech from the young man himself. He had come for the happiness of his people, chose Scotland as his starting point because he knew he should find brave gentlemen zealous for their own honor and the rights of their sovereign, and as willing to live and die with him as he was willing at their head to shed the last drop of his blood. End of section 24